Hi, this is Lisa Costabeer. Join us on FX Medicine next week where I'll be talking to naturopath Alison Mitchell on managing the complexities of iron deficiency. Subscribe to us on your favourite podcast app and follow us on social media to make sure you never miss an episode. Costa-Beer and welcome to FX Medicine, where we bring you the latest in evidence-based, integrative, functional and complementary medicine. FX Medicine acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia where we live and work, and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Joining us on the line today to talk all things inflammation is Dr. Tim Crow. Tim is a research scientist, a dietitian, co-author of Understanding Nutrition, now in its fifth edition, and he also hosts his own podcast, Thinking Nutrition. Hi, Tim. Welcome to FX Medicine, and thanks so much for being with us today. Uh, Lisa, great. Thank you very much. It's great to speak to you and be invited on the podcast, particularly about uh, this, this very relevant and wide-ranging topic of inflammation. Absolutely. So let's chat inflammation. Um, I'll start off with just setting the scene. So low-grade chronic inflammation is at the heart of most of the conditions that we see in clinic. And it's estimated that one in three Australians has a chronic inflammatory disease. So I'm very excited to hear your insights today, Tim, particularly on how to resolve chronic inflammation as it can be such a complex area. Can you start by telling us a little bit more about inflammation and is inflammation necessarily a bad thing? Yeah, so you certainly hit the nail on the head that inflammation is, is forefront in the public's and clinicians' mind. It, it's really underpinning many of the chronic diseases we are faced with in Western countries like Australia. So you, if we give everything, it's a really bad thing. But it's actually a good thing as well. We actually, we actually need inflammation. It's part of our body's immune system. If you cut your hand, if you fall over and graze your knee, mm-hmm. that redness and pain that you see and feel is acute inflammation. That's part of the body's way it deals with the acute injury. Mm-hmm. And then over time, that inflammation is suppressed and then the body regenerates and, and heals. So inflammation is critically important. It's not bad. It's part of our body's natural defense system. It's when it's chronic that that's the problem. If you think about if it's a fire that is not put out, that fire keeps doing a lot of damage. So inflammation is great short-term because Mm -hmm. of the changes it causes, but long-term it's very harmful for our health. So inflammation you can see and feel is generally going to be acute inflammation, Mm. but the bad sort is the chronic inflammation, which you're really unlikely to know that you've got it. There's Mm. ways you could probably have an indication, but it underpins many of our diseases and it's more systemic. So that's the differences between them. So it's not that inflammation is bad, Mm. it's too much of it for too long. That's the big problem. Okay. So you said that when we have acute inflammation, we can typically see it. Totally agree. I fell down. Actually, I went rock climbing, fell off the rock, had a glass (laughs) bottle in my hand, had shards of of glass all through my hand, and it was very apparent, the acute inflammation, redness, swelling, edema. But what happens internally when you've got chronic inflammation? Because as you said, sometimes we can't actually see that in the same way as acute inflammation. So say someone has an autoimmune condition or atherosclerosis, what's actually happening internally with chronic inflammation? 
Okay, so what's happening is there's a whole lot of systems involved. One of them is one of the key um, um, immune cells, white blood cells, is macrophages. Mm-hmm. So what happens is they will go to a site of infection or, or damage and they will actually then initiate cascades with other immune cells to release things called cytokines, which are signaling molecules that really mediate a lot of the inflammatory process. That can actually be um, systemic throughout the body if there is some form of injury or infection all throughout the body. And you necessarily won't know that's happening directly. Mm. The presence of disease may indicate it, but there are ways we can actually measure this by a blood test. And one of them is the blood test for CRP, C-reactive protein, Mm -hmm. which is a really nice marker of inflammation. And there's two different types. There's really severe acute inflammation. So I think like really advanced cancer where the body is breaking down. You could have CRP levels that are in the in hundreds of milligrams per deciliter. Hmm. Whereas very subclinical inflammation, we can use another test called HSCRP, which is high sensitivity CRP. That may not be up to really high levels, but it's enough to show that the CRP levels are higher than normal. And CRP is a marker of the inflammatory response. So hmm. there are ways we can measure it by a blood test, and it's a very robust marker of overall inflammation. Okay. So sometimes in clinic when I've got someone with an autoimmune condition, for example, and I can tell they're super inflamed, it might not be something like rheumatoid arthritis where I think I would see those elevated levels of CRP, but sometimes with Hashimoto's, you can tell that there's inflammation, but it's not necessarily showing up with high CRP. So do you think it, it would be correct to say that Patients don't necessarily have to have elevated levels of CRP and ESR on their bloods for there to be inflammation present. Uh, that's correct, but it also depends what test is done. Most mm. of the time, it's just called CRP, mm. which is you know, that's like more of a you know a bigger measure of inflammation. Mm. Hence, this other test called HSCRP, mm. which is really designed to just pick up levels of inflammation still in the but the more reference range of 0.5 mm. to 10 milligrams per liter. That's not as common a test. But that's a, a good predictor of things like cardiovascular disease. So okay. if, if those tests are available, it's useful. But you're very right. You know, really overt inflammation, you'll just see it in a regular CRP test. Mm. But for just very low subclinical, that test won't, won't show it. But there'd be signs and indications it could be present in the person as well. Okay. So part of it is clinical judgment as mm. well. Like are there when you're doing history, are there potential other things that ticking off boxes related to lifestyle factors Mm. that could exacerbate that? And and we'll get into that fairly shortly about the the big lifestyle factors that can affect the inflammation. Mm. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting point because I was reading an article where they were saying with this low-grade chronic inflammation to consider other what they call sickness behaviours like fatigue, altered sleep, as they can also be manifestations of inflammation. Excellent. Okay. Absolutely, yeah. And you could add in there, are they physically inactive? Are they carrying Mm. a lot of weight around the middle? We know that with adiposity, particularly central adiposity, Mm. those fat cells are not inactive. There's actually more macrophages Mm. in fat around our middle. And what do the macrophages do? I've already mentioned they're part of the inflammatory cascade. So metabolically active fat around the middle is a risk factor for inflammation as well as metabolic syndrome, CBD, type 2 diabetes. But, you know, having a poor diet, poor sleep, as you've mentioned, that's a big issue. Pollution, infection, if you smoke, all of those can worsen inflammation, which then can tip you over the edge for the clinical presentation that the person has today a bit. You mentioned Hashimoto's, it could be mm. rheumatoid arthritis and so on. Okay. 
really interesting because a lot of patients have multiples of those going on. They don't just have the chronic infection and the sedentary lifestyle. They've got issues with their diet and dysbiosis and so on. So Yes, all of those are related. And that's really Mm. just with clinical judgment. You don't just treat the condition, Hashimoto's Mm. or the Mm. rheumatoid arthritis. You look at all these other factors which will impact upon the inflammation that's underpinning those conditions in the first place. I know within your latest edition of the textbook, there's a lot more focus on intestinal dysbiosis. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on the microbiome and dysbiosis and how that impacts inflammation. Yeah. So the gut microbiota is the hottest of hot topics just for the amount of systems it impacts upon our body. And while there is unlikely to be one perfect healthy microbiome that that it's the same for everybody. It's mm. highly individualized. We know that as you decrease diversity, that's the number of distinct species, that certainly is a big marker for dysbiosis. Now, the problem with when you change your gut microbiota is some of the metabolic products that they're involved in producing. One of them, of course, is going to be the short-chain fatty acids. These mm-hmm. are key mediators of reducing inflammation in our body. So if you think about a more of a positive diet that's full of minimally processed plant-based foods, has lots of prebiotics in it, that is certainly linked with production of more of these short-chain fatty acids. And they're almost what I consider like key signaling molecules in reducing inflammation. Mm. The opposite is true with poor diet and all the other lifestyle factors that go with it, then you see dysbiosis. And by inference, then that means you get less of these metabolic products and that will help promote or at least reduce the, the handbrake that's there that will control inflammation. So that's probably one of the key mediators with our gut mm. and inflammation. So it's just a change in the metabolic byproducts. And it's probably the short chain fatty acids, I think, are the key metabolites involved in this. So when it comes to dysbiosis, I know stress can very much impact our microbiome. Can yes. stress also impact inflammation? Um, absolutely. If you talk about just life stress, you're not talking about just a, you know, a small amounts of stress every now and then, mm. constant stress, that will affect the HPA axis as well, cortisol mm. responses, and, and so the cascade goes on. So that's probably like an alternative pathway feeding into inflammation or a different effector coming from just um, emotional stress. But we know that our gut is not in isolation. There is a direct crosstalk between our gut and our brain, and that also controls our stress responses. I'm certainly the vagus nerve is very important in that process. Mm. So even though stress can be external, it affects the brain, it can affect the HPA axis, also, again, our gut microbiome will actually register that stress, and that can affect our gut microbiome. So it's, it's incredibly interrelated. Yes. But it's just giving a bit more detail to the molecular mechanisms that are occurring for all of these environmental and lifestyle factors we know that affect our health. Mm. And I think I was reading some really interesting research on loneliness, and which, oh, is, yeah. Yeah, which is kind of a stressor in its own way. And I guess for some time we've known that perceived loneliness is associated with poorer outcomes, increased risk yes. of cardiovascular disease and so on. Yes. And there was a 2020 paper actually that examined the role of perceived loneliness and inflammation. And they found the individuals who perceived themselves to be lonelier actually had higher levels of yes. the inflammatory cytokine IL-6. Yes. And so I just find that really, really interesting because when, you know, we have patients in clinic, we're often very focused, I think, as practitioners on the diet and I think we 
look less at trauma and stress mm-hmm. and things like that, but it's such an important factor to consider um, when trying to reduce inflammation too. Yeah, loneliness is really considered getting near an epidemic proportions in Western mm. society. I mean, the UK now has a minister for loneliness, but oh, they're, wow. they're treating it so so seriously because we have all of the health problems that go with it. Part of it can be related to stress, but also loneliness can mean your diet could be not as good because mm. you're eating alone and you don't have as much motivation to make changes. Mm. Once depression kicks in, that will exacerbate a whole lot of problems. So, yeah, that's a great example that loneliness will be related to all the other factors, but in the end, it still will affect inflammation. And if yeah. it's affecting inflammation, it's going to affect all of the diseases, of which there are way too many, that are linked to it. So what about sleep? Because I know a lot of my clients really, really struggle with getting to sleep. They tend to stay up really, really late. Has that got any impact with inflammation? Absolutely. So if you look at all the lot of research done now in sleep, particularly in shift workers, so that's a great model mm. to understand, they have much higher risk of obesity and metabolic disease, insulin resistance, and all of that is underpinned by inflammation as well. Shift work and poor sleep habits could also be a marker for poor diet, which of course will affect your gut microbiome and inflammation. All of it's related. So in that case, poor sleep habits that go and affect all of our systems, it can affect your mental health and depression as well. All related. So yeah, getting getting mm. good sleep habits is, is really a cornerstone. Yeah, diet, sleep, exercise, probably the holy trinity of good mm. health. Get that right. Plus, of course, social connection, all the other things. Mm. But all that all that is really important. Yeah, definitely. So we've talked about some of the things that cause inflammation. A lot of conditions have that unresolved chronic low-grade inflammation, yes. right? So do you want to chat us through some of those? Okay, let's let's go through a bit a bit of a list and feel free to add, add in a bunch more, Lisa. So, cardiovascular disease, type two diabetes, metabolic syndrome, autoimmune mm. diseases, so rheumatoid arthritis, Hashimoto's, inflammatory bowel disease. That's going to be Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, and then you're getting into more the neuro ones, so potentially mm. Alzheimer's disease multiple cirrhosis. Have I missed any out? There's a bunch more you could throw in there. Pretty much all of them, right? So cancer. Many forms of cancer, particularly Mm. colorectal and and breast, have some inflammation as part of that as well. So there we go, all the the big ones. Yeah. So we've really (laughs) got to be considering, I guess, unresolving chronic inflammation in pretty much every client that comes in, don't we? Yes, correct. So I think a lot of practitioners really focus on trying to reduce inflammation when a client comes in and there's obvious chronic inflammation. But is there a difference between just reducing inflammation and resolving inflammation? There certainly is. So maybe a good analogy would be if you've got a a raging fire burning. Mm. And if it's in a closed space, if you reduce the oxygen to it, the fire will dampen down, but it will likely still be there. So that's helping reducing it. But if you want to resolve it, you throw a bucket of water on there mm. and, and you get rid of the inflammation that's there. My own research program has been a lot of work in, in pressure ulcers. So pressure ulcers are a chronic inflammatory condition, just that mm. constant blocking of the blood supply, say to the hip or to the leg or to the heel, mm. results in a wound. But that wound doesn't heal because the inflammation just stays there and it stays there and it stays there. Mm. Once you can help resolve the inflammation, then that allows the body to heal itself and mm. to heal the wound. So there's one thing to help reduce inflammation, and there's lots of lifestyle things to do that. 
It's another thing to resolve it completely, and that's sort of getting into, I guess, a lot of the chronic diseases. Mm. You can resolve the inflammation. That will certainly help with the, the condition that's being treated. So, yeah, there's a subtle difference between them. Reducing is good, but resolving is just as important. Yeah, because I've read in some papers there's there are broken pathways. So the pathways that help to reduce our inflammation aren't actually doing that properly. And yes, it's typically yeah. in a, a lot of those clients that you mentioned, the ones that are obese or have that chronic inflammation, metabolic syndrome and so on. Exactly. And so there's a lot of, I mean, this is very much emerging research, but mm. looking at those metabolic pathways. And here we're talking about our essential fatty acids of the mm. omega-3s and omega-6s. So mm. They are metabolized in the longer chain forms for the omega-3s. It's going to be EPA and DHA. For the omega-6s, it's arachidonic acid, but it doesn't end there. there. There's a whole cascade of further metabolites of those fatty acids, mm. which are involved in helping to resolve inflammation. And it's pretty complex stuff. It's emerging <laughs> research, but there's interest in these these metabolites to help really nip the inflammation in the bud. Okay. So these are called specialised pro-resolving mediators, and it's something you'll be hearing more about in the future. So it's really the, the next step from mm. our fish oil and arachidonic acid. It's really what they're metabolised into. And there's a whole a very complex pathway that I still struggle to understand. <laughs> it's fascinating stuff. <laughs> totally. Yeah, I have, I have been doing some reading about the specialised pro-resolving mediators as well. And my understanding is that we all produce them naturally in that yes, acute correct. inflammation, yep. but where there is obesity, where there is autoimmune conditions, for example, sometimes we don't actually convert the omega-3s to the SPMs. And I, right. yeah, so I, I'm really interested in Hashimoto's and I, I found this study which kind of blew my mind that there were lower levels of these specialised pro-resolving mediators in individuals with Hashis and their antibodies went up as the yes. SPMs went down, which I thought was really, really interesting. Fascinating. Yeah. Yep. So they haven't done any study, actual studies giving the SPMs yet, but they were saying that that chronic unresolving inflammation is probably a driver for those autoantibodies going up, which I just think is super interesting. So I, that's, yeah. That's a perfect way of explaining it, that fish oil may help reduce inflammation, mm. but to really resolve it, you need the further metabolism of the EPA, DHA and so mm. on. And if there's blocks, you know, there's things happening internally that are affecting that, that could be an issue. So mm. hence the idea in the future of taking the actual SPMs, which mm. are the, the downstream metabolites of EPA, DHA and arachidonic acid to mm. help resolve the inflammation rather than just damping it down. Absolutely. Okay, so we've talked about the underlying drivers and some of the conditions associated with inflammation. I'd love to talk to you about lifestyle. Um, what are your favourite lifestyle strategies to utilise with clients that have this chronic unresolving inflammation? Okay, lovely. we could talk about a whole bunch of them, but I'll talk about two that are really <laughs> important. First of all, it's going to be diet, and it's going to be about focusing on prebiotic fibre. And I mean, there's so many different types of prebiotic fibre. We're actually learning more and more about there's a whole bunch of different chemicals in plants that can have the gut microbiome, even polyphenols, for example, now mm. can be metabolised by the gut microbiome. In fact, they're important in actually the metabolism of them. So a simple thing I'd say to so many people is that when it comes to diet, 
don't try and hear one particular food as being mm. the anti-inflammatory food. Mm. Uh, it's a diversity of foods and, and color is just a fantastic guide to a diversity of prebiotic fiber in, in, in all plant foods. Mm. So color is a simple guide rather than just it has to be some turmeric or it has to be fish oil yes. or it has to be this. Yeah. But they're all important, but color is the best guide. And actually physical activity, physical activity is a really potent anti-inflammatory activity. Mm. When you're doing it, it's inflammatory because we know that it's painful, it hurts and it's good, but that metabolic stress is good for us long-term. So physical activity is strongly linked with reducing inflammation. Mm. Combine that with diet and guess what? Physical activity independent of diet changes your gut microbiome as well. So everything comes back to the gut. Okay, that's really, really interesting because, oh my gosh, I think a lot of us are really sedentary nowadays with modern lifestyle. Is there any sort of particular physical activity or it doesn't matter? Anything? Um, I'm asked this so many times. It's whatever you like, <laughs> it's whatever you like doing when you can do it. Yeah. Maybe there's an argument for more high intensity, short bursts of activity, but, mm. but considering our low, you know, the average Australian, their low base, yeah. being as active as you can whenever you can. And if you like swimming, swim. If you like walking, walk. If you want to run, run. Yeah. Whatever. Dancing. It's all pretty good. Yeah. Let the scientists debate and argue about this. <laughs> you know, small percentage differences in this sport versus that one. Yeah. Get moving and then worry about if you want more weight-bearing exercise. Hence, you know, running yeah. versus cycling. They're both good exercises, but for your bones, impact sport will be better than low-impact sport. But that's academic discussions. Mm. Get active. It's good for you. Excellent. And is there a duration? You know how sometimes we're told, okay, you've got to do 10,000 steps and that sort of stuff. Is there a specific duration that we should be recommending for clients? No, because every bit throughout the day is Mm. is additive. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't have to be in these magical blocks of 30 or minutes or 60 minutes. It, It all adds up throughout the day. In fact, only yesterday I saw a news story about this that just a small little burst of 10, 20 seconds of high-intensity activity throughout your day, like, mm. you know, really powering up a couple of flights of stairs, that has huge benefits. So you could combine a whole bunch of those little things throughout the day that are incidental, that you wouldn't call going to the gym or mm. going for a run. So it's really whatever suits you, but it has to be active and yeah. it has to put some mild stress on your body and it has to be a constant part of what you do throughout the day, not just at one particular time. Yeah, okay. I'm just getting this vision of you running up and down stairs. (laughs) Okay, so I like the way that you said that it has to be something mildly stressful, but yeah, but but not it has that opposite kind of effect. It's not it's stressful, but it's not hugely stressful. It's the it's the good sort of stress. So this is where you know exercise itself is stressful to the body, but then our body adapts to that. Mm. In fact, you will get stronger from it. It's some interesting stuff. So taking high-dose antioxidants with exercise to help with recovery likely blunts the adaptation you get from exercise, but you don't get that from diet. So mm. you actually want these cascades, these metabolic systems happening from this mild stress. Mm. Be it exercise, good stress, or it could be something stressful like sauna, for example. My favourite. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's a favourite topic of you to be, but you've been looking into the effect of saunas on health. I have. I love a sauna and I recommend them a lot for my clients because they're super relaxing. And then I had one a couple of weeks ago and I thought, I'm going to look up the benefits of sauna for reducing inflammation. And they're actually really, really good for reducing inflammation. And they found that the more times you do it during the week, the 
more it lowers your C-reactive protein, which I think is, you know, fantastic. Another kind of intervention for patients to implement into their anti-inflammatory kind of strategy. And again, it comes down to what you were talking about, that exposure to heat is actually a mild stressor. It leads to that acute release of interleukin-6, which is inflammatory, but then subsequently leads to release of anti-inflammatory cytokines. Yeah. So it's really interesting, I think, the way that the body works like that. And I think probably the cold water, the ice baths is probably a similar sort of situation. Yep, that's exactly right. So when you're controlling it, when you're you're signing up for this form of stress, Mm. it's actually quite a good thing. And one of the the benefits of sauna is thought that it may mimic exercise in some ways because if you're very active, that is putting heat stress on your body. Mm. And we have these special proteins called heat shot proteins that are there to help protect our proteins, so body proteins, from things like heat and temperature, low oxygen levels and changes in pH level. And those um, heat shot proteins can be anti-inflammatory. So exercise activates the heat shot proteins, so does a hot sauna as well. And really fascinating research coming out of the effects of saunas on health. Mm. A lot of it's observational, though. So obviously, the preferred population is going to be your Scandies. Yes, that's all part of it. <laughs> Everyone's got a sauna. Um, not so much here in Australia, where we don't have access to them. But yeah. if, if you know, you can go to a local health club, um, this pool or so on. A lot of them have them. And if you enjoy it, even though it can be stressful once you get past that ten or fifteen minute mm. mark, because it gets hot. It's actually doing your body good. Yeah, I was reading that typically you start just five minutes and then you build up to 10 minutes. You build it up, yeah. And then they say 45 minutes is the optimal, but not to go. Yeah, I know. (laughs) I've yet to make it ever past 20 minutes. That's that's it. That's where the fun ends. That's way too much stress. (laughs) Yes, definitely. Me too. All right. So I know that you're a bit of a nature lover, I think. Um, like me, so I was really, really interested to see that there's some good research coming out with green space reducing yep. inflammation too, which again, I think is just another great intervention. So can you explain a little bit about the concept of green space and how it reduces inflammation? Okay. So we don't need any research to tell us what we all know, that mm. the being in nature is good. <laughs> we mm. generally have lower stress levels. We find it enjoyable. We don't know why. It feels good, but it's just some, a good thing to have. So nature can be going out and leaving the city into the bush, but it also can be going into your garden mm. or into a local park. So just get the idea it has to be in the forest. But where nature can be of benefit for us, first of all, is reduced stress. Mm. So the average person, if you're in nature, it's likely you're not being beeped at on the road <laughs> like other cars. You don't have as many humans around you. Hopefully not on your phone as much. You're not getting as much disruptions. That will lower your stress, and as I've already spoken, reducing stress will then affect your inflammation and your health. Mm. So that's the first one. Another one is that this is observational research, but there is some research to show that people that spend a lot more time in nature have a different gut microbiota. Wow. Because of you're exposed to nature, but all the bugs and things that are naturally there, that may have an effect on your gut microbiota. And the other thing is the Things that you're breathing in from the plants, a lot of the volatile chemicals yes. can actually have an effect, which is why potentially conifer forests may be even better because there's a lot of terpenes and a lot of very, you know, that's that that pine smell. Yeah. You're breathing them in, that can affect your body. So a whole lot of plausible mechanisms. Or you could say, forget the science. I just know that going for a walk in nature is good for me. 
and it is good for you. <laughs> <laughs> definitely. I think oh, I, I can definitely attest to that. those benefits. I always feel really, really relaxed and, yeah, just really good after some nature time. You can't help but be mindful, right, when you're outside in nature, Correct. you're hearing all the bees and the butterflies and the, the leaves blowing. And I was reading a study where individuals were taken to a forest versus another group who actually had to go visit the, oh, yeah. the urban centre, maybe maybe Westfield or somewhere like that. <laughs> the opposite <laughs> and of nature. Total, okay. yeah. total opposite. And the individuals that were taken to the green space, to the forest, actually had much lower levels of those inflammatory mm-hmm. cytokines like tumor necrosis factor alpha compared yes. to the ones who'd been to the urban centre where nothing really happened to their inflammatory markers. So it is a thing. I, I think it's really, really interesting. Okay, so let's go back to food because you were mentioning those polyphenols and those fibres. I'd love to know a little bit more because I think individuals are completely bombarded with information on anti-inflammatory foods and anti-inflammatory diets. I was literally just listening to something, I think, at the weekend where they were talking about the anti-inflammatory diet, but there are so many variations and they were talking about how you shouldn't be eating capsicums because they're from the Solanacea family and so on. And so I'd love to know your thoughts because, you know, it can be quite confusing. You are completely right. So there is no one perfect anti-inflammatory diet, but there are themes that come up. Now, first of all, there's lots of foods that are promoted as being inflammatory or anti-inflammatory. The evidence for most of that is quite minimal. So Mm. we don't have a lot of good human clinical trials to show that, yes, this food is inflammatory or this food is anti-inflammatory. Probably the few exceptions would be fish oil, Mm. really clear. Take high-dose fish oil, certainly beneficial for rheumatoid arthritis, potentially lowering triglycerides and so on. Curcumin coming from turmeric, mm-hmm. certainly there's some, some pretty good evidence to the levels of meta-analysis showing its benefit in various forms of arthritis, potentially depression, PCOS and so on. But after that, it's hard to pick out individual foods that can be good or bad. Mm. Where the research is most and where what I prefer to focus on the message is dietary patterns. This is just a theme. Yeah. The best, my, the best known dietary pattern is a Mediterranean style diet. So eating that sort of way is linked with lower inflammation. So it's not any one particular food, it's a combination Mm. of them. So it's going to be lots of fibre from plant foods, there's green leafy vegetables, there's fish, but also all of that together, plus obviously the olive oil, which is anti-inflammatory, all of that together Mm. is linked with lower inflammation. But you can't pick out what particular component of it. It's important. So I focus more on the dietary patterns. If you get the foods right, then the nutrients take care of themselves. And if you're eating more of the positive foods, it means you're eating less of the foods that are linked with inflammation, and that will help improve your health. So generally, my theme is that plant foods, lots of plants, Mm. minimally processed. If you want to just be vegetarian, that's fine, but having some animal foods if you choose to is generally not an issue. A lot of the dietary patterns that are linked with low inflammation are fairly broad diets that align with Mediterranean diet or dietary guidelines and so on. So your version of an anti-inflammatory diet may be different from what mine is, mm. but really think more guidelines of the good foods to include to allow your client to pick and choose what suits them rather than just a rigid list of eat these, don't eat those. Yeah, We have a little bit of balance um, in, in all of that. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think, you know, when we go back to the research, 
on stress and HPA access being a driver of inflammation, I think that we as practitioners have to be incredibly careful that we don't add to a patient's stress and therefore their inflammation with these overly rigid oh, diets where they're then perfect. seeing yep. food as a problem and there's a lot of fear involved and, you know, yep. yeah. Yep. Okay, so let's talk now about your favourite supplements for managing chronic inflammation. Let me know what they are. Okay, so this I'm, a, I'm an evidence nerd. I've been in research all of my life. And, mm. and when I look at, this is purely getting into the supplement area. When I started delving into all of the work with curcumin, generally mm. it's curcumin rather than, than turmeric, I was quite surprised by what I saw, just the amount of positive research for a whole range of conditions. And I've touched upon some of them as well. So mm. um, exercise recovery, osteoarthritis, PCOS, uh, potentially even depression mm. as well. Um, there's a link with curcumin and depression. And it may not just be because of anti-inflammatory effects because curcumin can help upregulate a protein called BDNF, which mm -hmm. is brain-derived nootropic factor, wow. which is involved in plasticity, and that actually may improve mental health. Mm. So I think there's a good story about curcumin. But as you would know, it, this there's no one single form of curcumin. It's a, quite yeah. a... Uh, complex area to get into to know what supplement's going to be best. There's a whole range of different formulations on the market, proprietary ones. There's ones with piperine. You can take turmeric. So what I say to people is you can trial different sorts to see if you get a benefit from it. But I think there's a good case for the curcumin supplements, clearly. Fish oil, definitely. The research about cardiovascular disease was excellent some years ago. Now it's not as strong. Okay. Um, so maybe it's the fish more so than the fish oil. Mm -hmm. I have but, read papers on that too. Yeah. yeah, I've changed my view in the last five to 10 years. So mm. it may not be as strong as what we thought. And there's nutritional epidemiology is replete with these examples. You, you, you want to blame a, a nutrient as being the good or the bad thing <laughs> to explain your health, but it's probably a more complex thing than that because mm. food is more than one nutrient. It's a whole range of things in it. Mm. But fish oil supplements, certainly at higher doses, we're talking 2.7 grams and above, can be effective in lowering triglycerides, and rheumatoid arthritis, mm. so it's certainly a case for those. But I'm talking about EPA and DHA. Mm. So to get two to three grams of EPA and DHA, you could be talking, you know, near to ten grams of mm. fish oil capsules. So mm. it's it's higher dose. Yeah. So there's been a couple of studies on the SPMs for mild to moderate pain. And so that's what I'm using it for with exercise, mm. with squats and things like that. I've noticed that when I for about a couple of years when I've been doing a squat and I get down in that squat position, mm -hmm. there's always some kind of hip stiffness and impingement. And okay. yeah, I've only been taking them for about a week and already I've noticed, oh, I can get down a lot lower without feeling as stiff and... Fantastic. Yeah, I think it's interesting. So the research is emerging, but there was this recent pilot study published and they combined the SPMs with the curcumin, which I thought was really interesting because you're mm. getting... God, you've you hit, you hit the number head for my yes. two favourite supplements. Yep. Yeah, so you've got the curcumin, which is really good for reducing the inflammation, and then you've got the SPMs, which are great for resolving. And mm -hmm. they actually found that in adults with that mild to moderate pain, they were taking the SPMs and the curcumin combined for two months and they experienced a significant reduction in that pain and an improvement in that physical functioning after mm -hmm. 30 days, which I thought was really interesting because definitely when you have that loss of movement and you're in yes. pain, it does impact on the mood so much. I, I feel like I've torn my calf, I broke my toe this year and... Um, yeah, it really <laughs> impacts your day-to-day -day life when you can't move and you're in pain. 
Yeah, that, well, that's great that you're getting some benefit from these. So I'm always, it's great to hear some positive stories of, mm. of taking these sort of supplements. Yeah, And as we get older, particularly with exercise, <laughs> even though it's good for us, there is there can be a price to pay for it. So anything that can alleviate some of that pain and stiffness from it is going to be a good thing. Mm. So can you just go back to the polyphenols that you were talking about? What are your favourite polyphenol-containing foods? Okay, so there's about 8,000 different types of polyphenols. They're all throughout all of plant foods, you know, herbs and spices, coffee and tea have them. But when we look at the polyphenols that make it to the, into our colon that can be fermented by the gut bacteria and have a benefit, typically it's going to be the ones, the anthocyanins, mm. and these put the, the blue in the blueberries. That's what anthocyanins do. As the pH changes, they can go red and their colour changes. But I think these are probably the, the ones to focus on, which is why I'm a big fan of promoting berries, particularly mm. blueberries, for the polyphenols because we know that they can be metabolised by the gut microbiota. But once they're metabolised, they then impact upon the mm. gut microbiota itself. So a lot of the benefits we know from eating polyphenols and plants could be related to these particular ones. So I generally focus on those ones as good ones to consider. Okay, very interesting. So get into the blueberries. Blueberries, or it can be blackberries or strawberries because mm. the colour is still the presence of the anthocyanins, but as the pH changes, the colour changes. Hence mm. why colour is a, a great variety for health in mm. food. Mm. Okay, excellent. Anything else you think is relevant for us to add, Tim? So with today, uh, inflammation, a lot of the advice for, for treating inflammation and resolving inflammation with lifestyle and diet are things you'd recommend to anybody as, as a matter of course, getting good sleep, getting stress under control, be it just changing some lifestyle changes, getting out in nature, eating better and just making small changes, eating more plant mm. foods that have lots of colour, that have plenty of fibre in them and being as active as you can. Each one of those is additive for the benefits it will have. It's not an all or nothing thing. Every extra serve of a colourful fruit or vegetable you have a day will be good. Every extra few minutes of activity you can do per day will be good for you. All of it is additive. Don't think that you need to have a perfect lifestyle. Mm. Just get it 80% right most of the time and that will put you on the path to better health immediately. Completely agree. The key points I've taken from you today are that as practitioners, we focus a lot on diet, but exercise is also incredibly anti-inflammatory. Getting on top of our stress is also really important to reduce inflammation. And lastly, the focus has been on reducing inflammation. However, re-examining chronic inflammatory diseases through the lens of failed or dysregulated resolution is also really important as reducing inflammation doesn't always resolve it. Thank you so much for our chat today, Tim. It's been wonderful to speak to you. Um, it's been fantastic to, to chat with you and to share this really fascinating topic with, with your audience. I hope for a lot of people... They've got some practical insights they can take away to help with their clients. So thanks again for having me on. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. Don't forget that you can find all the show notes, transcripts and other resources from today's episode on the FX Medicine website. I'm Lisa Costa-Beer and thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. 
Make sure you never miss an FX Medicine episode by subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram.